Hi everyone, welcome. This is the next Zezcast. Steve is not here. I got my own podcast uh, and I like to talk to people one-on-one. I like talking one-on-one because uh, you can get to know people a little better and it's not two people yelling at one guest and all having a thing and it's a place where we can have a conversation. And today on the podcast, it's a pleasure to have Porkchop Express from Mr. Add-ons, a fine vendor of Mr. Related uh, devices. Uh, you can get all sorts of great Mr. stuff from Porkchop and uh, also quite a, you know, a great member of the community as well, not only through the sales, but also the extra work that's happening around the Mr. Add-on side. So Pork, how you doing, mate? Nice to talk to you. I'm great. Thanks for having me on today. Good. Thanks for making the time. I appreciate you. You're really busy right now. So you just got, uh, did you say you just finished assembling like a week ago or something, a whole bunch of orders? Yeah, it's kind of ongoing, but uh, my wife's actually been doing a lot of the assembly for me, which is super nice of her. But uh, yeah, lots and lots of kits gone out the door. Uh, January has been a huge month and December also a huge month. So hoping to recover here pretty soon. Got, just sure. got back from a weekend trip to kind of reset a little bit. So that was nice. We do all need that. But your, the, the assembly that, that your wife is doing, has she got the soldering iron out? Is that to that level? Uh, nope. It's just a mechanical assembly of the kits. So everything oh. comes pre-soldered. Uh, I started out, of course, soldering. I love soldering. But you, it, once you get to a certain scale, it doesn't make sense to do it by hand anymore. So sometime, I think probably 2019, I switched over to... Uh, factory assembled parts so i don't i don't solder anything myself anymore except for prototyping new parts which of course even then i try to pay as much as i can to have the surface components uh assembled for me by the factory then i'm just doing through hole and odd components okay so then uh, yeah, sure you the, the hardest ones let the factory do makes sense makes sense exactly yep Okay, so this is, this is ongoing because you were saying like, well, December was a big month and then January is a big month. And like, I have a <laughs> feeling there's not going to be smaller months or something if it keeps going like this. Yeah, that's pretty true. The Kind of the limiting factor right now is uh, the DE10 Nano, the heart of the, mm. of the Mr. Device, just as of like maybe last month or the month before, just started getting hit by these component shortages too. So now mm. those are in short supply. So that will naturally kind of slow things down until that is overcome, which I don't know when that will be, but I still have inventory on hand. I still have things to do and I still have other side accessories I'm working on too. So uh, no rest for the weary, as they say. Indeed. Actually, that's a good one to, to get into because you made a post the other day. You're asking people to to register their interest and how many people would genuinely be interested in buying a DE10 Nano. And you said that it, it was because the distributor wanted to know the numbers from you. Uh, is this a anti-scalping thing? Tell us the backstory of this. Um, from what I can tell, my distributor, well, I first of all, I buy directly from Terrasic. Mm. Um, and they, because of their part shortage, they have several different distributors they work through, including, say, Amazon, Aero, Mauser, DigiKey. And a lot of those big, you know, big distributors have placed large orders. And I think Terrasic is not, at this point, at this very moment, able to fulfill all of them. So I'm not really sure, but I think they're also trying to help out the smaller people like me and say, Hey, if you, if you for sure have people ready to buy right now, you know, send us, send us your numbers and we'll do our best to meet that versus, Hey, I just want to buy a whole bunch to have on hand. So they, they just want to see that these kits are making it to the end users, you know, as fast as possible and not just sitting in a warehouse somewhere. That's my impression. 
it's really good. I mean, if if that that's true, it's it's quite some nice uh, benevolence from Tarasic. You say Tarasic is that how it's yep. Yep, Jurassic. Yeah. Some quite it's good benevolence from them to, to make sure it's actually getting to people. I think so, yeah. They they've been pretty good to work with, so I don't really have any complaints. I mean, it's out of their hands. It's not like they don't want to make infinity DE ten nanos and sell it to the whole world. Uh, they want to <laughs> sell as many as they can as well. So That's interesting. Uh selling infinity uh DE ten nanos to the whole world. Uh if we, we, we go back, the DE ten nano was as people may not realize not created for the Mr. Project, uh, but instead, as I understand, a project based out of, uh, I, I think, coming from Intel to help people get into FPGAs. Um, is that correct? Yeah. So uh, the, the core FPGA processor, the Cyclone 5 that the uh, DE10 Nano uses, that is an Intel FPGA. And if I'm not mistaken, Intel actually bought Altera, and Altera was the original developer of that Cyclone 5 FPGA. So Intel acquired Altera, and they basically um, you know, supply Terrasic, the FPGA part, so Terrasic can make these educational slash development boards. So it's kind of a partnership between Intel and Terrasic to make this. Okay, that makes sense. How do you do? You have any I don't know insight or I guess just thoughts because if this was a this is a project to um, if they get these boards out there, people are going to learn FPGA and uh, you know hopefully grow that. I can see where Intel wants to go with that, um, and certainly we can say that there is a lot of interest in FPGA right now. A lot more people developing for it, but then there's just a lot of people just want to buy them. Uh, and not develop on them. Do you get any uh, thoughts about how does Intel or Teresic feel about this? Do they are they encouraging this? Are they happy with the Mister Scene? Do you know anything about that? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I've been in touch with Teresic uh, for probably one to two years now, and they mm. seem to like the Mister Project. They they think it's pretty cool. They haven't ever said anything negative about it. And I think uh, what seems to be the case with a lot of these vendors is that they want you to develop on their platforms and learn on their platforms. Mm-hmm. Their uh, compilation tools and their suites of everything, those all tie into their hardware. So it's kind of like Intel is hoping you get locked into using their Quartus software for development and their Cyclone 5 as opposed to a different platform. So their hope is to get people at a young stage developing FPGAs, which is why they have the educational program. So once they go into their careers, the thing that they're using that they know their bread and butter is Intel Cyclone 5 FPGAs. Mm. But in terms of in terms of the Mr. thing, I don't know if Intel knows or cares. I know Jurassic knows, don't seem to care. They've never indicated anything to me. Uh, they've always been happy to work with me and they've said good things about the Mr. Project, just kind of offhand comments here or there. So. Sure, nothing official. That kind of, uh, it's good to know. I, I was always a bit um, curious because certainly we can see a lot of FPGA development, a lot of excitement, a lot of interest and knowledge about FPGA out there right now. But there's a whole, I would say, I dare say the vast, vast majority are just users of this. No, we're all not developers of FPGAs. And I always wondered, like, or does Teresic or Intel sort of accept, well, if we want this many developers, well, then they've got to build a community, which means there's going to be five times more than that or probably a hundred times more than that actual just end users. I mean, you see what I mean? That um, yeah, yeah, most totally. of the people are not developing on that. But I guess they, hopefully they understand, well, the, that's a, a side effect and you need that to build the community. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
I guess every company manages the it the way they want to. I'm sure Terrasic is not losing money on these boards. I'm sure they're making some profit. Um, and so in, in terms of that, I don't know if they super care, but of course it's, it's a question a lot of people have, which is these are meant to be used for development. And if people are just end users, is that really the goal of the, of the platform to do the companies care? Will this ever come to a head? It's a good question. I think for now, you know, we're taking it one day at a time. I say, we, I'm just a seller. I'm a very light developer, but the, the people actually doing the heavy lifting, they're going to run the D 10 nano. So the wheels fall off because it's a great value platform. Mm-hmm. And if that ever does, you know, come to an end, have to look around at an alternative, you know, at the same time, you know, this FPGA is several years old. There are newer ones that are much better, but they're, you know, say closer to a thousand bucks for the development platform. Mm-hmm. But maybe in five years, there are a couple hundred, there are 300, 400. So I think, I think, de 10 nano has enough life left in it for the next couple of years um and then who knows where the project will be at that point yeah it's interesting that you, you sort of talk about the you, how many years it's got left and then what we can sort of theorize what would be the upgrade paths or something you like you said intel want to lock people in so you would imagine hopefully the next thing is easy to migrate to but i know we're sort of all just pinching and taking bits out of the sky here and sort of guessing because it does seem like um I say in our uh, retro gaming community and the uh, I don't know borderline autism that a bunch of us have, let's say, <laughs> yeah. that is prevalent through the community. And I say that with love. It's what we yeah, do. Sure. We're nerds. It's very common. But it's such a. I know that that can make the brain think like, oh no no, I can't. I, I've got to have the best one. So what if I buy it now? And what if it's in a new one? You see people freaking out about the OSSC Pro and oh, have I bought? I can't. Some people can't stand the idea that there is a better device than what they've bought out there and uh i think it's more for me it's a more interesting insight into humanity the way that the retro gaming community deals with possible upgrades to mister (laughs) yeah for sure i you know i hear that too Uh, well i sometimes get emails that straight up say i'll i'll buy a mister when there's a dreamcast core and it's like you know (laughs) hey cool you know i I hope it happens uh not gonna tell anyone it'll never happen uh, probably won't happen on the DE10 Nano. The other thing that happens, of course, is the architecture of these systems gets so much more complex as you go up each generation mm. that it becomes very difficult um, to a you know fit all of the code to synthesize it into the logic gates and elements that the FPGA has. As a matter of fitting, you know, think of it in terms of almost like a memory constraint, except it's physical architecture constraint. And the other thing is the complexity and the timing, the clocks get faster. So you're kind of running up against, well, developers can only do so much to develop the systems. The FPGA platforms are only giving you so much. And then, I don't know, what's three years or four years or two years of enjoyment worth to you? If the people that really love Mr., which... I've been surprised, like I've had almost no customer say, nah, I'm returning this thing, it's overrated, not up to the hype. Like almost everyone agrees, oh wow, it's as, as good as I've heard it is. So I don't know, I guess what is a year's worth of enjoyment worth to you? And only the only the consumer can make that decision. Sure. And and the and the great point there is it's not I mean, it's not real, it's only a year if you if you have a problem to think that I have to have the best thing. If you Take your take your Mister, take your DE10 Nano. You will still be able to play NES Core, Super Nintendo Core, all the current cores in five, yep. 10, 15 years. Uh, it's not a waste of money. 
No, we're, we're talking about 30 to 40 year old systems at this point. So, I mean, uh, the games aren't changing. The systems aren't changing. If Mr. can do it faithfully and you can't do one extra system, you know, I'm happy owning personally owning Nintendo 64 and up the real hardware and not even mm -hmm. thinking twice about it. And I'm happy for Mr. to eat away at every other console below that. Um, as long as it, it does it in a way that's, you know, zero latency and I'm not the most discerning bug finder. So as long as I don't notice, you know, that's to me, that's the metric free up some space and, and then I'll just fill it up with more CRTs and arcade machines. So <laughs> I we'll have our vices. Uh, we do. I, I only have a very small space in our small apartment here, but I've got uh, two, I've got two containers actually. I don't want to say they're all full of CRTs, but there's a lot of CRTs. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt. Going on in there as well. It is, it is a bit of our vice. Nice. Um, I'm pleased this is going so well. Just one kind of technical thing on that. I know you said, I know you're not a developer. I know you're, you're more a dabbler. You do make some, tools uh as well but just from your understanding if you moved up to a if they move up to a uh, newer fpga from what you said there's both the consideration of the size of the fpga the number of components that can fit in um but then there's speed that the fpga runs as well and it's not as obvious as just being like a regular cpu faster is better because timings as you said timings and very precise timings need to happen um I don't know where I'm going with this question, but uh, when you upgrade to a better FPGA, it's faster as well as larger. Is that right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's the way the FPGA works, things happen in parallel. So mm -hmm. as opposed to, say, software emulation where things happen sequentially, but a software emulator, you know, a modern computer can run, what, four gigahertz, five gigahertz. <laughs> That's super fast. The a lot of the clocks on these old like, you know, old 16-bit systems, they're like 10 megahertz for the CPU. So you're looking at an order of magnitude or more of difference. Um, so yeah, you have things such as uh, the, the what the timing that really matters is the memory. So there then there's another consideration too while we're talking about it, which is the input and output pins. So the Cyclone 5 actually has more input and output pins than the DE10 Nano exposes. The DE10 Nano exposes, you know, there's a 40-pin header on one side you plug in the memory to. There's a 40-pin header on the other side you plug in the memory to uh, so that you can do dual memory now. And then there are a few scattered around. But there are actually pins that are not exposed to the user that the FPGA has. So people like, you know, they want a cartridge adapter, for example. They want all these extra features. They want dual SD RAM so we can get faster access, um, but also want analog video, which takes up a whole bunch of pins. And so that's maybe something in a future platform. They could have faster connectors, uh, sorry, higher frequency rated connectors, more GPIO for extra peripherals, if that makes sense. And then, mm. yeah, the, the actual number of logic elements on the chip, meaning... Uh, think of a logic element like a Lego brick, like you can do one function with it. Um, and so, for example, Robert, the developer of the Game Boy Advance, Lynx, and now PS, I guess, PSX Core. We're going to hear some comments about that, I'm sure. Yeah, he's a um, PS1, PSX. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was actually working on a Nintendo DS Core, but it, it won't it won't fit, it won't synthesize, it won't run properly on the DE10 Nano. So he kind of abandoned that because in his words, the next best 
platform up was uh, at least twice as expensive, maybe 500 to $1,000. So he thought it's not, you know, really worth putting too much time into such an expensive thing. And then you have two screens to worry about. So, you know, you get into all of these weird caveats of all these platforms. And I think Mr. is doing a really good job. Of, of course, I'm biased. I say everything with bias. Uh, Mr. is doing a really good job of uh, getting the systems people really love the best possible, fixing bugs where, they, where they're found, being faithful, keeping it, you know, close to hardware as possible and keeping the features streamlined so that there's maximum compatibility. Hmm. Yeah, it's a lovely project. I've got mine here. Uh, I think it's great. I don't have Mr. Cade because I don't have a, an arcade cabinet. Um, but when I, I do, I'm, I'm tr- hoping to get one. I think when we move, maybe I can find some room for one. Um, Pork, yeah, I wanted to, uh, I know that... Um, you know, you you're not releasing the the Pork Chop Express autobiography anytime soon uh, to <laughs> nope. keep lives separate, which I totally understand. Um, but tell us a little bit about um, where where in America, where where did you grow up? Like general region, or what was the environment like where you grew up? Yeah, all over the place. I was born uh, in California, okay. uh, Death Valley, Mojave Desert area, oh. and uh, that's where I lived my formative years up until I was about five, then uh, moved, moved to the Midwest, spent elementary school in Indiana. Then I moved to Ohio, which is the next state over for about a year and a half. And then moved to Maryland from high school on, uh, you know, bounced around after that, but uh, kind of Maryland off and on until, you know, last year. So about half of my life in Maryland, half of my life between California and the Midwest. And, you know, I've traveled around quite a bit. We have family in, for example, Montana or all, all over the place. So we did road trips and yeah. Mm. So that's kind of my, my background there. All right. And your family, uh, it's not, is it a uh, military or business or how come you guys had to move around so much? Yeah. My dad, my dad worked, uh, in military. We'll oh, okay. That. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean this is just a guess on that one. No. Yeah. That's, um, it's fine. To, to, to move around okay how was was it um you said you moved when you were about five the first time did it did that like the i mean there's the term military brats or something like that for the you coming and going through schools was that a tough adjustment did that affect you to have to sort of fit into to different environments um you know i guess somewhat i mean i've my family is pretty reserved uh, i'm probably the most outgoing one and i used to be pretty <laughs> shy growing up but I'll tell you what, moving around kind of forces you to not be shy. And we didn't move around so much that I couldn't, you know, couldn't function, of course. But it really, you know, forces you to open up. And uh, my wife's very outgoing. And I think we've, we're kind of almost to the point where, we're, where she's kind of becoming a little bit more of an introvert. And I'm becoming more of an extrovert. I'm not sure if it's because of my business, because I'm talking to so many people, you know, through email or other, mm. other means. But uh there was there was a period a little funny anecdote there's a period in my life where i was in fifth grade i was in elementary school the next year i was in middle school for half a year then we moved i was back in elementary school for half that year <laughs> then i was in junior high the next year then we moved again then i was in a new middle school and then the next year i was in high school so i went through six different schools in five years so uh you know you know there's something to that but I don't know. I, I appreciate moving around. I think uh, I've seen a, a large swath of of humanity and you know different regions and kind of can appreciate stuff from 
different places. And there's also benefit to having your childhood friends still live, you know, in the same town as you. So <laughs> no right or wrong way, of course, but I, I see the, the positive benefits of moving around. Yeah, that when you said that you told that anecdote about moving around because when you're a kid, like every move between the grades or the school or is like huge, right? Every six months, yep. it's like oh, I'm so old now. And you yep. sort of you stepped up, and then in another school, no, no, you you you're back at this level, and then you're back up. That that's uh, it doesn't seem like much right now as adults, but I bet as a kid, you're like oh, now I'm going down a grade again. Oh. <laughs> the first move was hard. And then after that, it was pretty easy. That was kind of my experience. The first one was like being ripped from my childhood. And, <laughs> you know, but as soon as I got to the new, as soon as I got to Ohio, it was all good. Like I had friends there, you know, I was, I had the benefit of being the new kid, which there is some benefit to that. I mean, never got picked on or anything. People were like, Oh, a new kid. And yeah. So I don't know. People have always been nice to me and I, I definitely don't, uh, don't neglect that or don't, uh, I'm not unappreciative or unaware of, of people's kindness towards me pretty much my whole life. So mm, that's a nice attitude to have. I, I moved, I only moved once. And I, I think I want to say, I forget, look, I forget whether it was the, the third year or the fourth year or something like this. So that would be your elementary school, I think. Yep. And, uh, I, I moved at just the time that, and I was in a Catholic school when I was younger, and then I moved to a public school. And I, ba yeah, like also the way you, the, the two curriculums were different. I missed grammar. Like something happened along the way, and I missed the time where they say, hey, this is a noun, and this is a verb, <laughs> and this is an adjective. And so I roll up to my new school, we're like, yeah, noun, verb, verb. I'm like, what are you people talking about? I have. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're growing That's up great. in an English-speaking country already, so it's not they're not heavy on the grammar in Australia. We're, we're a bunch of we're much more energetic and enthusiastic people. We're fucking animals, um, but we're not so much <laughs> the intellectual type. So, uh, gram English grammar is not big in Australian uh, curriculums to begin with. And uh, now I would say that now I'm getting some of the grammar as I am learning a second language for the first time. Uh, here in Estonia. So finally getting my grammar lesson, whatever that is, 35 years later, or however old I was. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I'm sure you did actually miss miss out on some things, but my experience is grammar is kind of, at least for me, maybe, maybe I just wasn't paying attention. It's taught in elementary school for sure. But by the time you get to high school, it's kind of expected, you know it, but no one does. And so, yeah, you hit on it some here or there, but you move into literature and other things and yeah, that that's that. And then maybe in your professional life, you have to go back and learn because you're now you're typing, you know, professional mm. communication, whether it's a document or an email, and you don't want to look totally moronic. I mean, a little bit moronic is okay, but not totally moronic. So yeah, I, that's my experience too. Um, mm. But I mean, I would never guess that based on talking to you. So for yeah, they had that's a, worth. a, a policy. That, Thanks, I don't speak so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think that they also look while I was bagging on Australian education system, their their focus was on spoken. So they they taught you to speak real well, but maybe not write so well, sort of thing. So I can <laughs> yeah. I absolutely I absolutely know what is correct English. You can tell me, and I can say yes, that is correct, or no, that is not correct. Um, just as, as as I know, you can as well, but I can't um I can't tell you why. I can't tell you the grammatical underpinnings of why something is correct or, or sure. Not. Yeah, when I when I got my first uh, first big boy job after college mm -hmm. here, um, 
we were, you know, we go through the gauntlet of mandatory trainings and all this stuff. And one of them, there was a course called grammar in a nutshell. And it was like a <laughs> one day, one day course. And it's like, man, why can't they teach this every year? Like just refresher. It's, it's so useful. And it's like, oh yeah, that's how that works. That's a, that's what an Oxford, uh, comma is and you know all, just all that stuff like why can't they just refresh this because we assume as adults that we just have synthesized all these skills and abilities and in reality i think we're all you know kids pretending to be grown-ups here trying to make it through and trick everyone else <laughs> into thinking that we're smarter and more more capable than we really are i think a lot of times i, I think so too and that might just be uh, you might do that in your regular life as well but that's also compounded by the internet uh look you could be you could be kurt russell if you want to be on the internet everything's okay <laughs> Some people are like, you don't sound like Kurt Russell. I'm like, Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> I mean, what do you, I do my best. I, I guess I don't actually try impressions. I could, but it seems like it's outside the scope of what I really need to do. I was wondering actually before when I had that time spare before the podcast started, I was like, because I know there's a, a thing right now called the, well, I know vlogging, but there's, it's, it's like virtual blogging where you're a YouTuber, but you're a total virtual character. Uh, but you're being driven live like a like a more advanced face swap technology or Weird. something like this. That's news and to me. Yeah, there's whole genre now of YouTubers who it's in an animation, but they're, they're talking live, but it gets animated over live. And uh, yeah, I was wondering, can we do this with like a picture of Kurt Russell? Are they at that level? I don't think <laughs> it's at that level yet. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, it might be, but it's, it's outside my knowledge for sure. I, the future of the internet's pretty wild. As I look at my kids, I'm thinking, well... Good luck, guys. <laughs> You'll figure it out too, just like I'm sure all of us did. But who knows? What did you uh, What did you study in college? Um, electrical engineering. So when I say I'm not a developer, I have a background in development because we have to. I, in fact, I took uh, one course that had FPGA development in it, mm. and it made my it made my head spin at the time. And you know, college is mm. such a a, a mash of all these different ideas and like you know obligations and whatever and it just didn't click at me at the time and i didn't i didn't continue but yeah electrical engineering all right i mean that's interesting now i um i have a, a degree in computer science i was all from the the software side but that was i mean 20 years ago i'm 42 uh so that was about 20 or bit more years ago so when it but when you went through electrical uh, engineering school uh, they were already talking about fpgas then that was something on the radar even some years ago yeah fpgas are you know they're not necessarily a new technology i i graduated college in 2010 so about 12 years ago but um yeah by then they were for sure out uh you know several generations old um, FPGAs are great because, well, A, they're great development devices. If you're going to spin up a, a physical chip, you can pretty much prototype it using mm -hmm. an FPGA, which is going to be nearly one-to-one -to, -one to the real chip before you go through this expensive process of doing custom fabricated uh, application specific integrated circuit. Um, so there's that, but then also just the fact that they have pretty much no delay, make them great for real-time applications where you need uh you know fast like things like lookup tables that lots of industrial applications use because you know they they need the information there they need the real-time processing hmm. Hmm. when you were at um university like these days i mean now you're a well a business owner a small business owner whatever you want to call it entrepreneur uh, making it happen for yourself and i remember when i was going through university there was no 
feeling of like, yeah, just uh, go be a consultant or go do something on your own. This is 2000 or something like this. And it was, ba- it was basically all go work for a reasonably sized company. Yep. Um, and now here we are, it's it's 20 something years later and, and everyone's got a startup and everyone's entrepreneurial and, and everyone's hustling. <laughs> How was the feeling for you when you were at university? Was it like, yep, we all go and we get jobs for, for big engineering companies or was it there was an entrepreneurial spirit? Tell us about that. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, um, it was most of the people that I knew. It was which defense, con- which, uh, you know, military defense contractor <laughs> were you going to go work for? Because that was... And probably still is. I don't. I'm not in that loop anymore. The big, uh, the big industry there for electrical engineering. It was the Raytheons and the Lockheed Martins. I mean, those those were the Boeing's. That's where the jobs were because you know for engine electrical engineering, it's either you're doing consumer oriented things. I had one friend that went to work at Intel. I had one friend that with his dad went and made a an Arduino based telemetry company for monitoring um farmers uh like stock houses for where they keep their right. vegetables so mm-hmm. a little bit of everything but it was mostly mili- a military uh contractor bend from what i saw and in fact i had one i had one professor i was in his office one time getting some help and he said i really think you should you know think about going into industry a little bit out of college because it'll help you kind of define your skills uh get some hands-on application. So it's, it's kind of the direction it went. I don't know if it still is that way, but I assume so. Mm, I, I, okay. Especially because you said where, what, sorry, where would, where did you go to, you no, wait, did we say this? Where did you go to university? But close no. to where the military is happening. I went to school in Utah and there's a, um, mm. there's an air force base right there, Hill air force base, mm. uh, North of salt Lake. And they're kind of one of the big job creators there. And so that's where a lot of the defense contractors, were um you know anytime there's a military base you have all the big players have operations there makes sense yeah steve was telling me from steve from retro tech was telling me because when he he graduated with a i think it was a chemical like um chemical engineering and he he and like his whole class like all of them went to work for basf that was in the region and it was just Uh what happened and they scooped up like 20 of them in one go uh, yeah when these industries are around Yeah, it's interesting. The, the chemical engineering stuff, when I was in it, uh, when I was in engineering, it was all the petroleum companies. Those are the ones that were recruiting the chemical engineers because um, mm-hmm. that's where the money was at the time. Now, I'm not sure if that's true. I don't know if the gas companies are investing as heavily um, if they see their future might be curtailed or if they're full steam ahead. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know either. It would be very interesting to get some insight into that industry. Do they just keep going and damn the rest or they've still got enough growth to get them through the next 10 years or something and that's what they worry about i'm not sure i'm fascinated by different career fields i you know electrical engineering is interesting and you know i have more than a lifetime worth of things to learn about it but i'm also interested in all kinds of different walks of life just talking to different people talking to uber drivers talking to whatever uh on this trip we took I always make it a point to talk to the drivers and maybe they hate it. I don't know. Maybe they just want me to shut up and, you know, <laughs> listen to the radio. But, uh, the, one of the Uber drivers we had there was, uh, into Brazilian jujitsu and had been practicing for like 20, 30 years from Brazil. And kind of, you just learn so much about that sport, uh, mm-hmm. a culture that you don't really know about. And yeah, I, I just think it's great to, to rub, rub shoulders and 
learn from different mm. people around you. Have you ever done jujitsu yourself? I put on my brother's karate uniform when I was a kid and that, that's about <laughs> as far as I've gotten. No, I, I never have. I, you know, it's funny cause I said, Oh yeah. Like, how do you feel about the sport? You know, you have UFC, you have all these, now you have these celebrities fighting like professionals and yeah, it's just this whole explosion. Do you feel like that's been good or bad for this sport? And I made a comment about, you know, it being martial arts being kind of violent. He said, Oh no, this is uh, this is, what did he say? Yoga with submissions. So like he's very protective of his sport to say it's not violent. But as I looked at his cauliflower ears, I'm thinking, how did the, how did your ears get cauliflower without any violence? Anyways, it was great. You know, great guy had a great exchange. It's a it's a sport that's interests me, but uh, unfortunately, I still have a day job. Well, not unfortunately, I still have a day job and my side job. I have zero extra time for any new things in my life at the moment. I won't always be that way, but for now, that's how it is. Yeah, I understand that. I uh, I did do I did jujitsu lessons for a while, but I came across the same problem that you had. There's a class schedule, hard to get, and and so forth. Uh, my days are a little bit more free actually, so I was thinking about actually going back to class. Um, yeah, it's not uh, my my simple experience from let's say three or four months of of going to class. Um, I mean, violence, it's more like man cuddling. You just yep. cuddle someone into submission. And if I can just cuddle you in the right position, then, uh, yeah, you've got it. I think it's very good for self-defense. I think it's good for uh, um, good for the mind as well. There's a lot of tactics as I've come. I've I really only scratched the surface of this, that it's, it's not about tact. It's not about your weight or your size. It's all about those tactics. And I think that makes it a very interesting sport or, or, or hobby. So I kind of yeah. want to get back into it as well. So that's nice. You can go around and so you you're you're interested to talk to those people around you, find out more about them. Were you were you were an annoying kid? Were you always asking questions as a kid? No, I was quiet. <laughs> I was quiet. I'm one of you know one of several kids, and I'm the youngest in my family. So uh, I guess you'd have to ask my siblings about that. But uh, I I consider myself just kind of you know reserved. Uh, observe, you know, unobserver more than a talker. Mm, I like it as well. I'm a bit, I have kind of a bit of both in me. I no doubt have a large extrovert side uh, years as a comedian and as a performer and a host and okay, doing podcasts and stuff like this. But when I'm not doing one of those, I mostly don't want to talk to people. Uh, oh, for sure. And uh, yeah, try to you have that time where you kind of you're out there in public and you have to expose yourself and talk and, and whatever the forum that is. But then the other times I sort of just want to bring it back. And um, like, if I'm, if I'm just hanging out with friends, I don't need to be the loudest guy there. Uh, yeah. I know a lot of extroverts who are like, want to dominate the conversation. But if some, if someone's dominating, I'm actually mostly happy to sit, sit and listen to them for a while. You learn way more listening than you do talking and asking good questions like you do on all of your interviews that I've seen. Uh, that's like the best way to get people to to open up and to learn. And, you know, it's, it's great. I love it. Hmm. Did you, um, going back to the your story a bit there, so straight out of, uh, out of college, did you, we don't have to go again, not details, but did you work for a big company? Did you end up going doing that? Yeah, big company. Still do. Okay. So That's cool. yeah, it starts to make more sense uh, your your stance on your your identity then. Yeah, so I, I have a, a day job that uh, is great and provides everything my family and I need, which is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then I have a side business. In fact, before I started, 
if you've heard this story before, stop me, but I did wedding, wedding photography with my wife um, for about 10 years. And when I say I did it with my wife, she was the main photographer and I got sloppy pictures of the groomsmen uh, and the groom, uh, you know, I, I do. Okay. I'm fine. But uh, you know, it was her business and I would help her shoot weddings on the weekends. And uh, we did that for about yeah, 10 years. And right at the end of that, she was switching to a different job and, uh, you know, kind of around that time, she'd be working on editing photos late at night. Um, and I'd just be by myself. The kids would be in bed. So I'd go down to the basement and I pulled out some of my old consoles. I started looking into, you know, what modifications could be done. So I went through and modified all my consoles. I built custom, you know, individually shielded SCART cables, which was a huge pain. <laughs> OSSC, G SCART switch, got a huge CRT that didn't work out. Uh, you know, all this different, all these different things. And I was realizing that while she was editing photos, I was downstairs soldering, tinkering, modifying consoles and, you know, selling a few on eBay and was thrilled, you know, to make a hundred bucks here or there, um, you know, just as a side gig because I was bored and I liked staying super busy and I got tired of watching TV, got tired of playing games. So thought, you know, put my, uh, put my skills to use and refine my skills. So that's kind of how Mr. Add-on started is, uh, she was wrapping up weddings. Uh, I was doing the console mods. And as soon as I got my first set of boards from, uh, let's see, it must've been PCB way at the time, you know, you have to order a circuit board, you have to order in groups of five or 10. So I got enough to make, you know, one for myself and sell the rest. And they sold immediately. And I realized, hold on, I just made more money tonight than I made in the last month and a half doing just a console mod here or there. So I kind of just, set aside all my modding stuff, sold a bunch of stuff and dove right in and have kind of not come up for air since 2018 when I started that. It seems like that. Before you before you started on the Mr. Stuff, what uh, what was the typical console mods you were doing? So I would usually get a couple mod kits and I'd do one for myself. Uh, so I did several uh, N64 ultra hdmis i believe that's what they were called the original hdmi mm. n64 mod i did uh several high def nesses which i hated still hate uh you know a lot of plastic cutting mods uh, i did a Wii dual i pretty much i did a dc hdmi i did pretty much all mm. the mods but i think the ones i sold the most of were the nes or the high def ness and then mm. the um the n64 hdmi well, I'll, hand you, I'll give credit to you because you've just reeled off a list of the hardest mods that can be done at least a couple of years ago. Like these are all very oh. fine pin soldering mods, but I guess you've had some experience in that area or at least through your work a bit. Seriously, don't give me too much credit. I started out before that. I was actually doing uh, PS3 downgrades and Xbox 360 JTAGs. And oh. I got a soldering iron from my university bookstore that was, I think, uh, no joke, like 99 cents or $2, no temperature control on it. No, didn't know anything about flux, you know, and as an electrical engineer, people expect you to know how to solder. There mm. was, there was one lab in one class of all of my engineering where we soldered. They taught us how to solder. They said, okay, you'll probably never do that again. <laughs> Everything Whoa. else was bre because that's a technician's job is to solder an engineer designs and prototypes oh. using breadboard. And then a, a tech, they would pass the thing off to a technician who would do the soldering, but I love soldering. I was just bad at it. Didn't have the right tools. Didn't have the right technique. Wasn't using flux. And so mm. I have some PCBs. I've literally burned holes through trying to do some <laughs> Xbox 360 upgrades. So we all, earn our you know we all earn our <laughs> our abilities 
Yeah, I, I remember weird when it was a university as well. You're young and you don't really know what's up with a lot of the world. And yeah, like, oh, we're better than that. Or I don't do that sort of job. I, for us in computer science, it was kind of turning our nose up at those doing more just straight IT. Like, oh, you're in, you you administer a network, do you? Uh, okay, so you can yeah. figure a, a script. Congratulations. I'll, yep. <laughs> I'll be over here doing my Java coding. <laughs> oh, web development. Ugh. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> We had to learn Java and, and engineering. And there are those niches. Yeah, it's like, well, the people who can't do computer science do IT. And the people who can't do IT, I don't know what they do. But I did actually in, in college. start YouTube did, channels. And they make all the money. You know, it's it's funny. In college, <laughs> I uh, I did computer support for one of the departments in the school. And so I, w- I have done, you know, mo- most of us in the retro gaming scene have liked computers, know how they work well enough to fix them, build them, whatever. So we end up finding ourselves in IT jobs at some point or another. And I did IT there for several years. And yeah, I saw, I saw someone fall out of computer science into IT. Um, and I just thought, man, if I could just have my boss's job, his job is freaking sweet. He makes X amount of dollars. His job's pretty easy. He has an easy life. And I'm so, I mean, love the guy to death, but I'm so glad I didn't stay, you know, at that level where my, my vision, my view, my, my goals were just so low. You know, I, I just kept working towards it and got through engineering. It was hard. I almost threw in the towel once or twice when I was just like, man, this is just tough, but, uh, you know, persevere. And now I use almost nothing I learned in college, uh, except for the things I've relearned or learned from the first time. So. Oh, it's that thing, and I know the parents say it. It's a generation after generation. Just go to school. You'll 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 thank yourself later. You set yourself <laughs> up for life. All those things, and you know what, mom and dad, that was was a little bit true. Yeah, the, there's some truth to it, and uh, you know, of course, you have to be strategic when you're going into debt. I I in fact almost went into law school afterwards, and I was I was facing the debt. Uh, I was already working full time. I was studying for the. Uh, the exam is called the LSAT you take before you go to, to law school. Mm-hmm. And I was practicing and I said, okay, if I get this score on the LSAT and I get into like a top, like a top school, I'll probably go. And if not, I'll reconsider. And so I got my score. I did. Okay. I was in like the top third, but not, you know, top 10% or whatever you'd want to be mm-hmm. to be in a prestigious school. And I thought I can buy a house or I can go to law school. And the decision <laughs> was really easy. I bought a house yes. <laughs> and it was a great decision. I don't regret it for a minute. My friends went to law school uh, and several of them have kind of bounced off of it or, you know, laws, you know, it's just a hard career. So anyways, mm. all that to say, uh, we all make our choices and sometimes we, uh, we make the, the the right choice, and sometimes we don't. But uh, I'm I feel fortunate that I haven't haven't had too many missteps in my my young career so far. So I can count that as a blessing. I think that cost of education is something that the the rest of us around the world can solve. I mean, we can sort of forget in in America that it costs you a lot of money to go to school. I might have, I mean, maybe I paid. 5000 a year for three years or something. I had the debt paid off a couple of years after I started to work at a bit, even paying very low rates. But it's just unbelievable in America, it seems. And you have to make very tough and large financial choices when you are not really necessarily at an age where you could you could focus on these things. Did it dawn on you? that You just saw that number and you were just like, no, nah, you got it straight away. No, so the law school thing was like, you know, 200,000 in debt. So I was like, that's a, that's a chasm. I mean, how many years does it take you to work your way out of that situation? So that one was an easy one to avoid, but undergrad for me, I, I, um, you know, I, I had saved beforehand. Uh, 
I worked at a military base in high school, saved. I worked at Taco Bell. You know, I, I just saved my money. I was pretty frugal. And then I worked in college kind of throughout and my parents helped out some, but I was fortunate to graduate without any debt, which was great. First of all, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I knew I had to choose a program where I was going to make money out the gate. <laughs> that was step one. <laughs> if I, if I was getting something that was expensive to get and not very well paying and of course, we all make our choices and people are also deceived too. But I think I think college is still a good bet for a lot of people. Um, when it comes time for my kids, I'm definitely going to encourage them for college. But at the same time, uh, depending on what they want to study, I'm going to have to, it's going to be a tough decision, I guess. You know, not it's not a slam dunk like maybe it used to be. I think that's what that's you're saying. Great point. Like, yeah, it used to be. Again, I it was always when I was growing up, go to college, go to or university, go to university, go to university. It's a good thing, uh, particularly in my family. They were just like, yeah, not really many people in my family had got that higher level of education. My father hadn't, so he was real big on you know my my son is going to have a better education than me and all that. And I think yeah, I'm I'm like you. I, I think a lot of people in in our generation are looking around now and going. I mean, we get it. We did learn things in university. We're not saying that's useless. Um, there's the skills that we learned directly, but then there's the experiences that we had, and then there's the ability to learn and that that process of, of lifelong learning, hopefully, that sticks with you. And that's all really important, and it's still there. But I do look around society right now, and I do I do see a large area where it's like, oh, there's a lot of people that don't need that tertiary tertiary education anymore. Um, particularly if it's costing so much. And for me, what I think really opened my eyes because I started, uh, I went to school, I've got parents, study, 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 we're doing this. I go to study computer science, I study computer science. I I do this for a couple of years. I work as a consultant working on web apps and uh, nothing very sexy or exciting. And then I quit. I quit at about 24, I just quit. And uh, I went to, I decided that I was going to go work in the theater. God, that sounds like a stereotype when I say it out loud. I'm leaving. I'm going to go work with the traveling <laughs> theater, mom and dad. Fuck you. Um, no, it wasn't that. But I, I sort of made this move totally over to um, arts, which is now what I have now built into the, my career for the last 15 years or so. So yeah. I'm sort of, I think the only way that I would look at it different is that I've now learned what it takes to have a career in the arts, in entertainment, in these other fields. And I can see there's certainly not fields that uh, you need a university education for. Having said that, um, the the reason I can do so much of this today is for my computer science degree. Uh, I was a software trainer straight out of university. My first boss worked out real fast that I am better at talking than I am at coding. So uh, he was like, yeah, we're going to, so they were doing uh, like straight out of university almost. I was teaching uh, Sun certified Java courses and just uh, going, yes, well, in my industry experience, I have learned. And I'm like, I'm just talking about university assignments, but (laughs) I got a lot of faking before you make it. So while I can look at a university and say, yeah, it's not necessarily for everyone in the year 2022, even little things like that, I, I learn how to talk and present and uh, I use these uh, now even when I, I host a lot of um, tech conferences here in Estonia, we have a huge startup community. So I can get on stage at not only IT, but yeah, if it is an engineering talk, sure, I can watch that 
for 15 minutes and come up with a couple of interesting questions. So uh, even though I wouldn't say I directly work in my field anymore and was it worth that time? I don't know, but there's still a lot of little weird places that your university education can come out in a real life. Totally agree. I think you can learn something from every experience, good, bad, whatever. You can learn from the mistakes people before you have made and try not to make those. You can learn firsthand by making your own mistakes. Um, and I think I was watching a thing recently with uh, the guy that does dirty jobs, Mike Rowe. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know if you ever use that. So, yeah, I think uh, I'm a fan of his. Yeah. So he, he has this, I guess, this foundation where he basically, instead of paying for college, he paid for trade school uh, and he puts people through trade school. And he says a lot of them come out making six figures. So I think if your goal is to make money, maybe you shouldn't. Uh, rule out anything that's not college. You should include other other ways of making it because like you said, you started one thing, moved into another. If your goal is to learn something really specific, well, the information's probably already on the internet if you really if what you're wanting to do is just learn. But there is something to be said about having that certificate from a university that says this person created the you know completed all the curriculum, they can jump through all the hoops and if that's if your career field requires that, it requires it. But increasingly, I think most many employers are, are realizing if you can do the work, especially in IT and, uh, mm. you know, computer science, if you can program, what more do you need? I mean, do you really need a, a formal education or can you actually solve problems and, and think creatively? I think so too. Yeah, I, def I definitely see that around here in the, in the local startup community in Estonia. They need people. It's a small country. They need people to come and not like I'm not trying to say they'll take low quality or accept anyone. But I, I certainly think, as you say, it's certainly possible to be self-taught and, and get by. Um, yeah, I was when I was at, we were talking before about uh, doing tech support. And, but at the, while I was saying, oh, I'm in computer science and I, I looked, no, so, you know, whatever, I don't mean so bad, but I looked down on those people just doing tech support, just yeah. doing network management, um, being young and arrogant as I was. Um, at the same time, I did do, I ran a small little business doing tech support. So this was 1999 and we were, I don't know, we still had Windows ME installs around the place. That's how bleak <laughs> computer systems were then. And it was back then, I remember, it was really common that a computer would just blue screen a couple times a day. And you were like, yeah. oh, okay, yeah, I guess I restart now. And it, it's okay. And I, I would even... It was back in the day before. Now we all just buy a Dell or a HP or some sort of pre-made system, mostly, I dare say. But people just, I would build them from parts and sell them to, I don't know, the local real estate or some other local mm -hmm. company or something like that. And they call me up and they go, uh, my computer blue screened. What do I do? <laughs> I don't know. Restart it. Does it. How many times a day? Twice a day. I'm like, that's acceptable. Just restart yeah. twice a day. <laughs> Nowadays, that'd be, you know, red lights going off, panic, all the alarms sounding. But back then, yeah, it wasn't uh, wasn't uncommon. Mm, yeah, the computers themselves, well, yeah, they weren't so good back then. Oh, So let's go on to, to Mr. and Mr. Add-ons and, and getting going. So the, the, you, you started with buying a whole bunch. Of you, it was easier for you to buy the stuff from PCB Way, make them yourself. And as you said, you, you weren't really expecting to sell off the other nine, but you sort of did. And you were like, oh, this is great. Um, was it that you couldn't find a good supplier or was it just in your electrical engineering blood to want to build it yourself? Yeah, good question. I, I just enjoyed soldering and it was already, you know, I, 
I'm a value person and uh, I usually do, uh, okay, less so now that I'm so busy, but before when I was less busy, I was doing all my own car maintenance, everything, you know, I remodeled my house, I redid Mm. my kitchen. So everything I could do myself, I did. And soldering was one of the more enjoyable things I could do. So it was kind of a no brainer to solder my own boards. And there were a couple of good, uh, the main, the main person in the U S at the time that was selling Mr. Components was uh, Tinker Plunk and uh, mm. great guy. As soon as I got on the scene, he was kind of starting to pull away a little bit to pursue other things in life. And he was super gracious, recommended me, helped me out on a few things. So, you know, like all of us, I owe a lot of, you know, a debt of gratitude to him for helping me kind of get started. But yeah, there, there were just were not many people who had any kind of stock, any kind of anything in stock. So I thought, well, I can do that. I can do a little bit better than this. And I got a eventually moved from hand soldering everything to getting a reflow oven. Uh, not, you know, just probably a month after starting, I got a reflow oven and a solder stencil and solder paste. And uh, are you familiar with that process? Uh, no, not completely. Walk us through it. Tell us about that. Okay. So when you have a surface mount component, that means there are no uh, legs, component legs that go through. Okay. So yeah. when you're, when you're assembling a circuit board, you typically start with your, well, you always start if you're doing it right with your surface mount components, which are the resistors that look kind of like, you know, little rectangles, um, all the stuff mm-hmm. that sits on one layer of the board. Mm-hmm. So when you order your circuit board, you can also order a stencil with it. And they basically laser cut out uh, a sheet of aluminum that has the holes where the components need to be placed. And you, you, you take a squeegee and you squeegee on a solder in a paste form onto that stencil and then you pull the stencil off and what you're left with are what they call the footprints the little so- the pads of the circuit board have solder squares on them and then you simply with tweezers place the component place the resistor onto uh, into that solder paste then it's just a matter of heating it up to the point where the solder flows and then letting it cool down and the idea being squeegee on that solder paste place all of your things put it in the oven or use a hot air gun, reflow the whole thing. And that's way faster and way neater, uses less solder, waste less um, than soldering by hand, especially for small components. So I got one of those. I started doing batches of, you know, like five or 10 in an Mm -hmm. evening, as opposed to one or two. I mean, it just speeds up the process so much faster. Um, And then the next step in my evolution was I had somebody I knew nearby who was kind of in between things in life good with his hands. I said, Hey, do you want to come work for me for a little bit? You know, you can work, you know, whatever hours you want. Um, you can bring your dog, you can watch, you know, whatever, just kind of an easy, easy setup. And I taught him to solder and he was great. I mean, he was already good with his hands. So it's just a matter of like, you know, applying that, that same skill. And he soldered for me for probably a year plus even moved across the country and would ship stuff to me. Um, and so that worked out great all the way up until the point where I made the connection with a factory who could do it in, in groups of a hundred or hundreds or a thousand. And you're at the stage right now where you could order a hundred and that's, you're, you're, you're okay with that. Um, yeah, I, I, I rarely only order a hundred of anything. Normally I'm in the 500 to a thousand per order okay. for components, but, um, you know, just be Okay, so I'll say this too. With Mister, it's kind of there's there's a challenge not being necessarily. I'm not in the loop any more than anyone else is in terms of what's coming down the pipe for hardware. 
So the risk I incur is, okay, I order a thousand of this version of IO board and a new version comes out with a slightly different feature. Now I'm sitting on 800 stale, you know, IO boards, whatever mm-hmm. the case is. So that's the risk you take by, by doing it the way I do it. But at the same time, you leave so much money on, I would be leaving so much money on the table and I just don't have the, the sanity anymore to sit and solder when I have all these other things. I have customer emails to get to. I have new products to develop. It's, it's, soldering is just the worst use of, a, of, a, of your time if you're able to make your own stuff. Um, so that's kind of the point where I'm at. And I've loved the way I've done it from, you know, not have to take out any loans the whole time with my business. I've just run it you know, one step at a time, grown gradually, uh, put the money back in the business, use my day job to take care of all of my expenses. And so I've been, it's been very fulfilling. I've learned a ton. Um, so yeah, it's been really good. Have you, um, okay. So now the factory is doing them. Is the, is it, a? Uh, are all the factories in China? Yeah. All the factories okay. are in China pretty much. I wasn't sure whether there was some like even a, a, like uh, these services like PCB Way that'll do small ones. Are they doing even small runs in America though, or that's all China too? It, it's all China. They just they're able to do it so fast that I used to get stuff done for mod boards uh, using Oshpark, and if you use their economy slow service, uh, JLC PCB or PCB Way in China will beat the American because I'm not convinced they're not actually for the economy ones. They're not actually subcontracting it out. That's speculation on my part, but yeah. uh, anyways, they're so fast and with DHL shipping, you can get it in two days sometimes from the factory to your doorstep, which is insane. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just really not from from a small business perspective. Well, actually, from any business, if you care about profit, it's hard to not use China. Yeah, sure, makes sense too. I just wasn't sure whether there were some local or some available. Um, just no, nope, it's all just China right now. Okay. Yeah, all China. So, like I said, I've I've been fortunate in that I haven't been caught with much stale hardware. But it, I have to put a lot of thought into my, how many I want to order of something. And now, mm. uh, I've been working on you know my own hardware, starting with Mister Cade, which was a, a super long endeavor, mostly because I didn't know how to do. You know, up until I started with Mister, I'd never done circuit board layout or anything of the sort. Didn't learn it in college. I, I uh, shoulder surfed people who did in the computer lab, like, whoa, what are you doing? That's crazy. What is that? It looks cool. Never learned it. So I'm, you know, I'm learning from the ground up and now I'm much faster than I was a year ago, but um, it's nice to be able to have a little bit more control, make your own hardware. And a lot of that's based on, you see what the customer wants, the requests, the needs, you see some things that maybe could be improved. And so it's cool to be able to say, all right, well, let me let me take a crack at it myself. And I'm still slower than most probably, but, you know, able to do things yourself is always fulfilling. Yeah, you've done so much. This business has grown so far in that time. So right now, uh, okay, stuff's getting, the, the boards are being made for you. So do you have uh, anyone besides, let's say, maybe your family or your wife or something helping out? Do you have anyone else helping you with things right now? Yeah, I, I usually keep one uh, one person that helps me assemble kits, do small things like, uh, you know, trim pins, put together things, uh, the non-technical work, even, even testing stuff, uh, I trust them with, but it's hard to let go of control, especially with shipping, man. I, I actually have, yeah, I have my family help with shipping, but it is hard because some of these international orders, I mean, and, and so here, here's one thing I just want to touch on quick and we'll get back to it. Mm, let's go. International, international shipping is tough. 
And it's tough mm-hmm. because we're all human. Let's say out of every hundred orders, I make maybe two mistakes, whether it's an omission of something that should have gone in the kit or it's the wrong version. My kits right now, I have 12 variations between color and board type. And it's just like, man, this is, you know, I have to be extremely meticulous when I'm shipping stuff. Uh, in international shipping, I only use UPS. Uh, I use, okay, so I use first class international, but only for Canada because it's been so reliable. But I have to use expensive shipping overseas because I'm shipping, you know, things that I want tracked. And if I don't use internet, if I don't use premium shipping, the tracking is sometimes incomplete. Sometimes it's delayed. It's a bad experience for the customer and for me. It takes away more of my time. And it's just better to have door-to-door tracking. But uh, I guess having said all that, um, shipping is something that I've really wanted to outsource and I do sell on Amazon some, but I really feel like I'm just going to run shipping myself cradle to grave with the business. Like I'm just never going to totally relinquish that to somebody because the, you know, it's like, maybe you find this in your career as well. It's the thing that like pulls that, that cuts deepest when you, when there's a mistake there because the customer ordered something, they paid good money Um, I'm not saying I'm giving anyone a huge discount here, but they paid good money and then to get the wrong thing or to be missing something. And then for international ones, it's a $50 fee on my part to get it back. And then another 50 bucks to get sent, you know, the cost just cascades. So I think I'll always do shipping myself and I'll blame myself for the mistakes and I can live with that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good, the shipping is a good one. So, uh, because yeah, one of the reasons that I, I personally have never bought for you is that exact reason. I'm here on the other side of Europe and, sure. uh, I just go Doesn't for make a, sense. a UK provider instead. They seem to be all right. So I'll go with that. Sure. Um, you had, you had a few, you had a, a, actually before I get onto that, um, talk us through, I, I've heard that a lot, like, oh, the, the shipping can be handled by Amazon. What, what does that mean? You send your inventory to Amazon and they put it together? What does that mean? Yeah, so there are like several options on Amazon. You can list your stuff on Amazon and then sell, then you ship directly. You can do fulfilled by Amazon where you mm. get barcodes for each one of your things. You apply them, you send your stuff to the Amazon warehouse. They then distribute it to all their warehouses. So if you send a hundred of something, maybe they send twenty to California and thirty to New York and fifteen to Chicago. They they distribute it around their network. And then when someone's buying on Amazon, they'll see the Prime badge there and they'll know, hey, if I if I click this, I'll get this next day or two days. The funny thing is, you know, it's gotten worse since I moved to Idaho because I'm pretty far out of the way from people. But in Maryland, I would often beat Amazon because I usually, okay, if if I'm having a normal week, I can usually stay up to shipping, uh, you know, within a day or so. So I can usually ship, usually ship within 24 hours, sometimes 48. And sometimes it's a weekend or something happens and I'm a couple of days behind. But oftentimes I was beating Amazon. But the advantage to having yourself on Amazon is there's a whole bunch of other uh I'm not going to say that they're lower quality, but not my stuff on Amazon. So if people are going to buy on Amazon, you know, if I have my product there, of course, there's a chance I'll get those sales. If I don't, they might skip over my site and say, oh, I don't know, it looks sketchy, uh, you know, whatever. Mm. So so th- there are all kinds of fulfillment options for a vendor, oh. but every one of those, you lose control. For example, Amazon will take a return without you 
having any say over it. And then they'll mark that item as not sellable. Then you have to pay Amazon to get the item back into your thing. And it could have just been that the customer ordered one from my site and one from Amazon and whichever one got there first, they were going to return the other one. You just don't know, but you just kind of play these games where when you go with Amazon, you definitely give up control. I've had my listing taken over by a Jewish advent calendar before. Like, they're just yeah, what all does kinds that mean? of weird. I heard that. I've heard my listing taken over. What does, again, I don't know what that means. Yeah. So, the way, I mean, I don't totally understand it, <laughs> but uh, the way it works is you have an Amazon stock identification number, which is like a UPC, like a barcode, right? And that's assigned to the product you're selling. In my case, I'm selling, you know, SD RAM is the only thing I have listed on there at the moment. Someone can say, I'm also selling this. And so miss, uh, so Amazon will combine the listings. Once the oh. listings are combined, the other person can edit somehow. They're able to edit the title and the company of the listing and change it to something totally different. And then your listing stuck as something that it's not, and you, and then you're locked out of editing it because someone else has taken over, and it doesn't make any sense. But it's happened to me. The same company has done it two or three times. I made a friend through Mister. I made a lot of friends through Mister. That works at Amazon, and he's put me, you know, in touch with Amazon support directly. And they've resolved it both times. Uh, so I need to get more inventory back up on there. But until you have a registered trademark for your company you can't protect your brand on Amazon. So the, the Amazon, what they want to do is they want to combine all the same listings and they want to get all the sales. You know, they don't care who gets the sale. They just want the sales to happen. Mm -hmm. So there's something really nice about running your own shop and uh, it, it comes with a price, but. I think so know, too. Cause I, you said, you said, you said yourself that uh, a lot of the things you order, you have many different variations and it sounds like many different variations be very hard to do with Amazon. Yeah. It's, it's overhead too. I mean, I, I purchased UPC barcodes from the official barcode place for the things that I sell and I have 10 and I think I've used six out of the 10. So I have to say, well, is this something I really want to register a barcode over? Is it something I just want to sell through my shop on the side? You know, what are, what are the goals here? But I've done, you know, let's just say 1% of sales on Amazon and 99% on my site. So it's not to say I don't appreciate Amazon. Cause I think for a lot of people that makes sense but you have to watch your own back. And I do have a, I did register a trademark, but that's kind of a long process. So maybe once I have my trademark registered, I'll, I'll dive deeper into Amazon for fulfillment. But even, even when it works, like I said, it's disappointing to have refunds generated without you getting to like interact with the customer, right? There's no like, Oh, Hey, like what's your problem? Or, Oh, I see, I see the issue. There's, there's none of that with Amazon. It's, you know, total middleman. I get it. But for small electronic stuff, that's and lo, I'm still low volume. I mean, let's say I sell a hundred things on Amazon. That that doesn't, you know, it doesn't rank high in Amazon's priority list. When you were talking about uh, barcodes, so do you? First of all, there's some government or private organization that's issuing barcodes, and then if you do, you only need that for each product you need to sell on Amazon. Yeah, and there's another complexity is you can sell by the Amazon stock identification number or by the UPC, uh, Universal okay. Product Code. And mm -hmm. so I bought my own UPCs, which I own directly. So I thought, trying to use my brain here, I don't know if it worked, <laughs> was, hey, if I sell my own UPC, no one else can claim that they own it because I own yeah. the certificate for that. I should be safer. If I sell directly just using the Amazon stock identification number, the ASIN number, 
anyone else can also sell under that. So I chose UPC, which I thought was the right thing. And I think it still is, but it didn't really prevent that from happening. And yeah, there is a third party organization. I'm trying to think of the name of it that issues barcodes. And then there are people who I think there are resellers of barcodes, but I just went straight to the the organization because, well, I was trying to avoid headaches, which maybe I avoided some headaches, but not all of them. Okay. The do it yourself attitude comes through once more. Yeah. I mean, when you're running a small business, you try to keep your costs down because there are so many costs. You have insurance, mm. you have all, you know, you have these shipping fees, you have transaction fees through whether you're using PayPal, whether you're using I, I run my platform on Shopify. So if I use Shopify pay, there's transaction fees here, there. I have, you know, I have a PO box, so I don't have anything coming to my house. So I pay for that. Uh, you know, you have packaging and shipping and your time. And, you know, just, I think the biggest one though, that it's hard to put a price on is your emotional uh, <laughs> energy. Oh. Like it can take, you know, one email that's not even really negative And that really out of, you know, out of context is a really appropriate email that just kind of deflates your <laughs> ambition for the day. You know, like, ah, dang it. You know, even if it was justified, uh, you, you have to kind of protect your emotional, uh, emotional capital because, uh, it's, that's kind of up to you and no one else. Yeah, sure. And this, um, I, it's kind of, it's an, it's a good one. And I want to just to sidetrack for a moment, because I, as I was saying before, I, I think like in the IT, um, retro computer games, our sort of world, um, there's a lot of people who look, again, I want to be respectful, have some sort of maybe mild autism or some very precise, I don't know, look, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't mean to offend anybody, but there's, it's common amongst people in our sort of communities. And I've always wondered, like, is the gaming or the retro or whatever a little bit more toxic because we tend to be a little bit more on the spectrum overall? Um, I don't know. Cause I know just, you know, computer nerds, they just, sometimes they just say it straight out and you kind of go like, Oh yeah. If I, if I take the emotion out of your words, you're correct. You have said what is correct, but Oh wow. Jeez. You, you really don't know how to say it the right way. I, I couldn't agree more. I've never met, I'm not saying I'm the most normal person ever. I mean, sure, we're, we're, all, all we're all a little bit weird. We're, we're trying to use CRTs. I mean, every time I pick up a CRT, <laughs> my wife just looks at me like, I, you know, uh, I guess I really do love you. Uh, she keeps saying, what's the end goal of all of these? And I just say, ah, I'm just, I'm just rescuing them. <laughs> uh, but uh, I've never met so many people who are a so blunt, like just today, I, I got a comment on a tweet from 2019 saying that SD RAM was really expensive with no context at all. It's like, how did you find that tweet? Like, I'm not going to bother replying to it, but it was just like, that's bizarre. Like who, who, and who would take time out of their day to comment on such anyways, it takes all kinds. Right. But I, then I think, okay, we're talking about 30 to 40 year old games. There are few, there are some, but there are very few new games for these platforms. We're talking about 30 to 40 year old games that people still care about and are still fighting over best version, best setting, best way to play. And yeah, I've met a lot of people who are just, they really, you know, they really kind of trip themselves up because instead of reading the room and thinking now I know this is right, but is it right to say right now? My wife has a saying, sometimes it's better to be kind than to be right. And I think that's, that's lost on the internet. Like there is no, no such thing as kindness over correctness on the internet most of the time. 
So I think you're right. I, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of fixation on very minute details on really mm -hmm. old things, uh, and I think there's uh, very few reasons for that. I think. I and I feel and I, I guess my how to say we all should be good to each other, but I, I think I I I'm trying to sympathize more because. Uh, yeah, then sometimes like something, I, I don't know, I'm going through something or I'm looking at a project or a video or an article or whatever it might be. And then I do find myself the one inconsistency or something that's not quite explained. And I'll be like, oh, but they didn't right there. And even <laughs> I, I can feel that like open Twitter should say. And I'm like, no, don't be a dick. Why do you need to say that? You don't need to comment. This person's worked hard on this video, video article, whatever it might be. Just calm down. I'm like, yeah, whew, calm down. It's okay. Well, yeah, I think that's great. And I've never seen any interaction with you that was negative. So I guess you're managing that really well on your side, just really cramming down your emotions to, <laughs> to <laughs> make people happy. But I also think, you know, you can be right and the delivery can be good or bad. Mm. Like you can, you can still deliver the information because I appreciate when I'm corrected, but I appreciate it more when the person's not a jerk. When somebody corrects me and they are a jerk, I can recognize they're right. That doesn't make me like them anymore. But when somebody says, Hey, I think you messed up here and they do it graciously that like, to me, it's like, wow, I want to like, you know, give them a hug or, you know, just like, that means the world to me for someone to take time out of their day to help me and do it in a nice way, which is never, you never expect today to be, to have that kind of grace extended to you. But I, that's why it's so special. I think when it does happen. Mm, I, I think I still, for that same reason, I still value very much. I mean, I know we all have our own offline lives, but I, I still sort of value very much, uh, at least in my work, I can go to a comedy show or go to an event or something like that. And then just sit there and like, oh, I'm hanging out with real people here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. I like to sort of ground yourself with the real people around you. And then once more unto the breach, uh, heading yep. out there. My next, uh, one of my final, oh, sorry, did you have some? No, I was just, I was thinking the same thing. Like, uh, I think it's easy to think that the world is very uh, kind of broken if you see it through the lens of say Twitter or social media or whatever. But when you go out and somebody holds the door open for you, uh, just the kind little gestures in life, people are really, we're all trying to do our best and we're all, you know, we're all have the same general goals. Uh, we might have different approaches or different methodologies of getting there, but I think, yeah, being around real people, there's something to that. Like you, you lose sight of that online because you get so kind of pigeonholed. And so you put your blinders on, but in real life, people are just people. And generally people are pretty good in my, in my viewpoint. Um, I'm going to, I think we'll wrap it up pretty soon. Uh, I don't want to take up your whole day. Uh, I do have what, sort of one question more, and I hope we didn't kind of inadvertently already answer it in the last session, but um, through the, through the work that you've done with Mr. Add-on's website, and, and as you've said now, there's, it's this whole operation with getting the stuff made and the packaging and then the, or the customer service to do all of that. Beyond the sort of technical things here and there, well, what has this operation taught you or a couple of lessons or something like that? Hmm. Well, I mean, on top of all the skills you learn from running a website, I actually started on WooCommerce, which is like the Wild West. Uh, oh, yeah. I, we use that. Yeah. Yeah. And installed on WordPress. And I, there are some things I miss about WooCommerce. So on top of uh, registering a business, which I'd already done for photography before this, but on top of all the, in, the specific skills, um, time management, no matter what stage of life you are, is always a challenge. It doesn't matter if you're, I think even if you're retired, uh, 
time management's tough. You know, I have, I have four kids and I have other commitments and I have family nearby and I have, you know, all these different things to balance mm. and time management's tough. The second thing is I'm really impressed by how much retro game enthusiasts together, how much we love and will buy. So you mentioned the <laughs> OSSC pro I guarantee a quarter of the people that bought retro tink five X's are going to go buy the OSSC pro. <laughs> and there's also, you know, the morph coming out. Yeah. This is not a, I only buy analog or I only buy Mr. Because there's so much, there's overlap, but there's also uniqueness and there's so much room for innovation for new companies uh, to come in or and just independent creators to come in and innovate, make their little widget and augment or, you know, carve out their own space. So I think for anyone interested in, in doing that, just give it a shot. And then the other thing is, there's just so much you can learn online. Like it's insane. I, I'd never had a single day of board layout in my life. I've had people help me a little bit here and there, but mm. laying out circuit boards, programming, anything, there's, there's a tutorial online. So I think we live in a time where human, the totality of human knowledge is on the internet at your fingertips, but you have to decide if you're going to watch that episode of lost for the fourth <laughs> time, or if you're going to sit down and learn something and there's a balance to be had, but I think people using their time wisely in whatever they're pursuing to better themselves always brings more like happiness and satisfaction in the long run, refining your comedy skill or whatever it is versus just consuming entertainment, which is also fun, but different. That is a great way to, to sort of put it. What, what in your day do you create? And I think a lot about that as an artist and, and even, and, and that doesn't mean, oh, did you put out a video today or a podcast or what did you put out to the world? But even I, I, I still, most mornings, I like to sit down and for about, if I can find half an hour to actually sort of write a little journal or something like that, write out some thoughts, not like, dear diary, do all the boys like, nothing like that, but just sort of getting my thoughts out. And, and even that is creating, I have... I put something out, even if it's on a bit of paper, I didn't just suck something in. So I think what the definition of creating doesn't have to be for the world. And it doesn't, like, it's not even like those papers are for me. They're just, well, if they're for me, but it's not like I'm writing a diary to myself. So creating and, and making something can be a lot more than I think people may realize and a lot more than a bunch of loud you know, dudes on the internet jumping up and down and, and yelling about retro games. Yeah. Do you, do you see creativity from your standpoint? Do you see it as similar or dissimilar to a muscle or like a, like a, yeah, a physical muscle that it's needs 100% exercise? A muscle. It's a hundred percent a muscle that needs, you can't just, people don't just come out with this, uh, some amazing work of creativity out of nowhere. Everyone has to grind away everyone. And even if you're talented, even if you're like, Oh, I'm just the best stand-up comedian or I'm the best, I don't know. I'm the best at laying out a PCB board. Jeez, I'm just, I'm so good at it. And so you still need to work at it because you know, no matter how good you are, you can be better. You can mm -hmm. be, who's, who, who writes their first joke and goes, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good joke. Uh, I think I'm done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you write a good joke and you think, no, I can write a better one. I can do more. I can and entertain more. So you, it's something that has to be, I think, worked on and, well, to, to bring it back to what you said, time management. You need to make time for this. And uh, there's this brilliant book. I'm, I no doubt a lot of people have heard of it, but that Deep Work by Cal Newport. Have you heard of that book? I haven't. 
so he's 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 like a he talks about productivity and that sort of stuff but the the big lesson that he teaches in that is you need time when you're just sitting and thinking uh to sit and think is when you come up with your best ideas. And he talks about it a lot in terms of the workplace, that if you're working for a company and a lot of things are happening and then the slack is bing, 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 bing all day long and you never get a chance to focus and never get a chance to, um, to because your best ideas, the, the ideas when you're most valuable are those that come up when you are alone, when you're in that thinking time. And I've gone as far as, well, I'm, my company, um, Comedy Estonia, we promote comedians, we run stand-up shows and, and that. I'm not the CEO anymore, so uh, I let someone else be the CEO. But a big part of the way I managed was I I don't want to micromanage them. And I'm basically going to give you the morning. You can have before 12 and I, I want you to not have meetings in that time. I want you to not have anything going on in that time. Um, we're our entertainment business, so you might have to work late, so they're sleeping in and that as well. But... To my mind, as a boss, as a company owner, I what do I want to do out of my employees? I want to um, make you, well, I want you to have a good life. Yes, absolutely. As a business owner, I want to get efficiency out of you. And I think there's an idea that like, well, if I'm on you and I'm slacking you and all that, that's getting the most value. Or I actually think I get the most value out of my employees when they come up with a big idea when they set a big new direction and they sat and thought for a while and I want them to sit and not have input. I want them to sit and maybe they don't come up with anything today. So was that a waste of time? But what if they do that for three days and on the fourth day they have a brilliant idea that's going to help change the work? It's kind of still worth it. So I'm, I'm really into this idea of what you sort of started on of time management, of having that time for yourself and giving, practicing your creativity and giving it the space that it needs to breathe there. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you can't, I think creativity, I'm one of the least creative people I know, at least by my own account. So I can only spectate. My wife's very creative, but it's not, obviously it's not something you can force but it is something where if you don't work at it, you definitely won't get an output. So you have to work at it and you have to hope that one of the hundred might be the gold, you know, but you'll never get to that one if you don't start. And uh, I, yeah, that's, that's great insight. Thank you for sharing that. Nice. Well, all right, we might, uh, we're coming up on the hour and a half here or a little bit before. So Pork, we might stay on the line. Um, I'll, I'll end the recording soon. So, We'll leave it here. Pork Chop Express, thank you very much for, for talking today. It's been really a pleasure to speak to you. Very interesting to get these insights behind the scenes and uh, look to understand there's, there's no magic going on here. You're just a dude who's working hard trying to do something you like. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, sorry it took so long to set this up, but uh, I really enjoy your podcast and uh, it's an honor to be on it. Oh, thanks, bro. It's really great. So anyway, thank you very much for listening. See you next episode.